Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 8, as Jesus sends this letter to Smyrna. He says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. As I said last week, each one of these letters has a, a description of Jesus. Five out of the seven have a commendation. Uh, two out of the seven, Smyrna is one of those, have a comfort and, and exhortation statement. Uh, five out of the seven have a rebuke and a prescription for change and a warning if change doesn't take place. And then all seven have a, a promise, close with a promise at the end. Hey, guys! As we, we see Jesus' description of himself as the first and the last and the one who died and came to life, that's really a key. The, the description of Jesus in each one of these letters is very much aimed at the content of the letter and the purpose that the letter is there. The, uh, the promise at the very end to him who conquers, that's also focused on the purpose of the letter and the situation that's going on. So Jesus says here, that he is fully God and fully man. He says that these are the words of the first and the last. That's a, certainly a description of Jesus. Colossians 1 says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Jesus begins this letter by saying, the one speaking to you is God. I know when He says, I know who you are, I know what you've suffered, I know who your enemies are, I make you a promise. Uh, I, I give you an exhortation and a command. He, he's able to say that with the authority of God. He goes on to talk about being fully man. Uh, he was born, he lived, and he died. And so Philippians 2 says, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus' humanity is clear. He was born, he lived, he submitted himself to humanity, he submitted himself uh, to, uh, in obedience to the point of death. It's the same statement that, that is made here, be faithful unto death. Jesus did that. And he actually died. We'll celebrate that in, in communion this morning. And he came to life. Now what's, what's interesting is that uh, Jesus doesn't say here, that he is the one who died 
and rose again. That would be true. Obviously, Jesus was resurrected. The difference, I think, is this. The, the resurrection talks about an event. It talks about the truth of this event. It talks about the wonder of this event, that the one who died was raised from the dead. But, but in that, it's, it's kind of on the objective side. It stands back a little bit from who Jesus is. And what he wants them to know is that he died and he personally came to life again. He was certainly resurrected. But life is what came as a result of that resurrection. Now, wh- why is this important to the, the church in Smyrna? Well, it's, it's because of the suffering that the church is enduring. If you can imagine all of us getting together facing some, some terrible time of persecution, um, political, governmental, financial, social, all the kinds of things that, that uh, people in the church have faced for 2,000 years. If we all got together and prayed, we're going to pray different things. We're going to pray for our financial needs. We're going to pray for strength. We're going to pray for faith. We're going to pray that God acknowledges our enemies and does something about them. We're going to pray that God would silence those who are opposed to the gospel and who hate his name and therefore also hate us. Well, in in some ways, this letter to Smyrna is an answer to prayer for these people. They've been dealing with tribulation. Jesus says in verse 9, I know your tribulation. I know that that's what's, what you're going through right now. I know that that's what you're facing. I know that you're poor. I know that you're being slandered. I'm God. I know these things. He can speak with the authority of God, and he can speak with the credibility of someone who's actually walked that road and lived that life. He's not saying, I, I see your, your suffering and I acknowledge it and it, it exists as a theoretical thing. He says, I've been there. I've taken the blows and I've heard the insults. So the one writing to them says, I can commiserate with you as a man and I can speak to you in authority and truth as God. Now there's something I didn't bring out last week that is, is very important. In the introduction to every one of these letters we see the the phrase, the words, the words. The words of him who holds the seven stars. The the words of him who walks among the seven lampstands. That's the church to Ephesus. In the letter to Smyrna, the first and the last. And the words of him who died and came to life. As the Letters go on. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. The words of the Son of God. The words of him whose eyes are like a flame of fire. The words of him whose feet are like burnished bronze. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God, which is a, a statement about the Holy Spirit. The words of him who has the seven stars. The words of the Holy One. The words of the True One. The words of him who has the key of David, the words of him who opens and no one will shut, the words of him who shuts and no one will open. The words of the Amen, the words of the faithful and true witness, the words of the beginning of God's creation. The answer to every one of these churches, no matter where they are, is the Word of God. In written form, take and write send this to the letter, or send this to the church. Now, Jesus could have gone and made personal appearances. 
He chose not to. Jesus could have communicated individually with those churches through prophets. He chose not to. He chose to do something that would have eternal, lasting effect, and that is to seal it in Scripture. That's important not because we have some uh, historical document, as been said lately, but because we have the living act of true, sharper than any two-edged sword word of God. These words continue to be spoken. They continue to be fresh. They continue to be new. The word of God is not like any other word that exists. My words drop to the floor. You have to pick them up and dust them off, five-second rule, and take them for whatever they are. The word of God is not that way. Think about music here. Think about music here. Stephanie understands this as a, as a music major. There are not very forms of art. Uh, music is certainly one and dance is one. There are not very many forms of art that only exist in the moment. Eliot's an artist. He draws, he paints, he's done sculpture. Haven't you done sculpture? All of those are things that exist. Eliot can devote that time to a painting or to a drawing or to a sculpture. He can come back the next day and it's sitting there waiting. But when Stephanie plays, the art only exists while she's playing. And when she stops, the art is over. Well, the Word of God has been sealed even more certainly than Eliot's drawings and the sculpture. It continues to go on. Eliot draws and he's no longer drawing. But the Word of God continues to speak in a living, active way. It continues to penetrate. So the best thing that Jesus can do for them and for us is to seal his words in writing and to give us something that can't be uh, opposed, it can't be objected to, it can't be twisted, although people do those things. To give us something that's absolutely sure. In verse 9, we see the, the commendation and comfort and and uh, the exhortation also in verse 10. He says, I know your tribulation... Tribulation is something that, uh, that happens mentally and emotionally. We suffer physically. Physical suffering is, is very, very real. We, we prayed about some who are suffering physically this morning. But tribulation, the word here, goes to the idea of distress. It goes to the idea of having a troubled mind or a troubled heart. That's something that really only human beings can experience. We have two little dogs. We, we've got our, our little Bichon Freeze. Minnie, who's actually Sarah's dog, Sarah just lets her let, lets us hold on to her for a while. And then we have uh, Rowdy, who's our little Maltese. Um, and uh, our dogs like to run alongside the fence that separates us from the neighbor's yard. And the neighbors have got two border collies, and they love to run back and forth. And they just bark at each other. And the, the two border collies, they're border collies, but, you know, they're nice dogs. They're not nasty dogs or anything. Well, this summer, right before the 4th of July, they're out there running, and there's holes under the fence, and uh, the, the, one of them zigged instead of zagging, and Linda comes in holding Rowdy, and her, her nose is just dripping blood. She says, well, Rowdy scratched herself. She got a bloody nose. I looked at it and, and thought, well, we've got to take her to the vet. It's just hanging on. We took her to the vet, and that's when she got scared. Now, don't you think it had to hurt when she got bit? But it's really weird. When she came in, Rowdy didn't say, doesn't she like me? Why did Molly bite me? She didn't think, this is going to ruin my looks forever. There's no distress. There's no tribulation. There's whatever physical suffering 
she had as a dog who got bit. But there's no mental process. There's no emotional process. Which is why she keeps going back to the fence and barking. And I've, I've told her next time she gets bit, she's going to meet the Lord because I'm not going to spend $300 on her nose again. Um, we're different. We're different. When we experience physical suffering, it brings an added emotional and mental component to us, to it. So that distress results. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. You're currently in tribulation. You're currently distressed. He says, you're currently poor. You're dealing with poverty. Now, poverty is really interesting in, in this context. Let me go there. There really was not much of a functional middle class in the ancient world. You had the people who were well off, who were wealthy enough to have slaves or have servants. And then you had the people who, for the most part, were those slaves and servants. You didn't have a big, thick middle class in the middle of working people who are relatively comfortable. Either you're well off or you're poor. So why emphasize poverty? If everybody is basically poor except for maybe 10 or 15%, why emphasize poverty? Because their poverty was really poverty. They're really struggling. Smyrna was a port city. Uh, it, it seems to have been the agricultural port where Ephesus was a cultural center and a government center. Smyrna is a, uh, a business center. It's an agricultural center. There's a ton of work. There's all kinds of work for somebody to do. Evidently, they're not getting hired to do it. Because of their faith, they're being marginalized. They're being set aside. And their poverty is increasing. Jesus acknowledges that. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. And it goes on to say that you are rich. We'll talk about that in a a moment. But he says, I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. These are people who are actually Jews. That's the claim that they're making. Culturally, they're Jews. Socially, they're Jews. They they have a synagogue, but Jesus says, but it's not a synagogue of God. It's a synagogue of Satan. It's a synagogue of Satan because as soon as they rejected their Messiah, they, they abandoned all claim to the one true God. Their teachings are not biblical teachings. They're satanic. It's a false religion. The Jews said about Jesus as he hung dying on the cross. You remember this. Those who passed by derided him, insulted him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying he saved others. He can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. They slandered Jesus as he hung dying on the cross for sin. The only truly innocent person who's ever existed. They're slandering those who are in Smyrna. They're slandering the church in Smyrna. Now we we see a statement made about the... uh, the Jews in chapter 3, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 9. Jesus says there to the letter to the church in Philadelphia, Behold, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, 
who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. I think that both of these letters, the letter to Smyrna and the letter to Philadelphia, we put this together and we get a sense of what's happening. What's happening is the the church in Smyrna is a a small church. It's a poor church. They're suffering tribulation. They're suffering a lot of anguish. But the Romans are thriving. And the Jews are thriving. And what they're being told is, if God loved you, you'd be thriving. You'd be well off and you wouldn't be suffering if God loved you. But God loves us. See our synagogue? See our temples to Zeus and Athena and all of the other all of the other gods and goddesses, the whole pantheon, see how wealthy they are? See all the gold and the silver and the precious gems? See all the artwork? See, God loves us. He doesn't love you. The reality is, is this morning there are people being told that very same thing in, in churches all over the world. Why are you sick? You don't have enough faith. God can't do anything unless you have enough faith. Why don't you have enough money? Well, you're not giving to the right people. You just need to trust God and lie about your situation. Don't ever say, I'm sick, because that brings about sickness, because you must be God if what you say comes to pass. Don't not only lie about your sickness, but give generously. You want your miracle? You're not getting your miracle? Give really generously. You can give to me. And there are people who are suffering this terrible abuse. It's a slanderous thing coming from people who don't understand. So Jesus says to the, the church in, uh, in Philadelphia in Revelation 3.9, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews, but they're not. True Israel are those who have put their faith in the Messiah of Israel. I will come and make them bow down before you, and I will make them know, I will make them learn that I have loved you. Because that's the accusation. God doesn't love you. Look at your life. Look at who you are. Look at how you live. Look at what you suffer. So Jesus says, look, I know your tribulations. I know the distress that you're in. He says, I know your poverty. And I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not. The irony is how rich they are. The irony is how rich they are having put their faith in Jesus Christ, having been elected to salvation by God, they have been given eternal life, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. They've been joined to one another in fellowship. They have immediate, peaceful access to the throne of God. They have forgiveness of sins, joy in Christ, peace with God, the promise of His presence and help. They've received, Ephesians 1 says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is being produced in them. This is a rich, rich group of people. These are the people about whom Paul writes, who will bring a charge against the elect of God when it's God who justifies. When God, the creator of all things, the judge of all things, looks at you and says, I see my son, I see the very righteousness of my son because of your faith. You think anybody else can get between you and God? And that God would listen to that accusation. Absolutely not. When you've been justified by God, no accusation makes any sense. It can't stick. 
Who is the one who's going to condemn? Well, Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Interceding is an ongoing thing. Justified is a legal act that Jesus or that the Father did based on the Son's death on the cross and resurrection. Interceding is an ongoing ministry. Jesus is our high priest. He's laying your name down before God the Father right now. So do you think that anybody else can get between Jesus and the Father and change His words? Of course not. He's praying you home. He's pouring out His own blood, His own ministry, His own role as a high priest for you. I think we could forgive those who are in Smyrna of of wondering, is this really worth it? I've put my faith in Christ. Look at all the stuff that's happened to me since. I've trusted Him. I've refused to deny His name. I've kept my faith in Him. I will not turn away from Him. And yet things just seem to go from bad to worse. And Jesus says, of course, in the the next verse, don't fear what you're about to suffer, which means it's going to get worse. And so those in Smyrna... I think we need to forgive them for saying it's hard to do this. It's hard to do this. And so this commendation is hugely important. And there were certainly some in Smyrna, and maybe many, who understood these words. Whether or not they'd actually seen the letter to the Romans, the Holy Spirit, I'm sure, had made this true. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those slanderers are telling them, you're wasting your time. God doesn't love you. Look at the difficulty of your life. That's proof of God's curse. And Jesus says, they don't know what they're talking about. And one of these days, I'll make them acknowledge that they don't know what they're talking about and that I have loved you. So Jesus exhorts them in verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Exhortations are meant to strengthen those who are struggling. Exhortations are meant to give people a boost when they're, they're trying to get it done and they're running out of energy. An exhortation is the one who says, you can do this. Take a deep breath. Get a drink of water and dig deep and finish well. Those types of exhortations are, are what we see in uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all of those believers who have gone before and have died, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here's the secret to that endurance. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. 
Keep your eyes on Jesus, the, the author and finisher of your faith. Don't let fear take over and dominate your life. Now, can't you imagine on, on Thursday when Jesse suffered that accident that his mom freaked? I think that's fair. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not giving in to fear. That's that moment of shock that, that we deal with when something that we just have no clue is going to happen explodes on us. Wednesday morning, Linda does the ladies' Bible study. I'm upstairs working in my office. The, the, our two little dogs are in the bathroom upstairs, and so they're barking, and they're pounding on the door. They're jumping on the door. Many will do that for a couple of minutes and give it up. Rowdy does it till somebody's come because she's full of faith. So I put in my uh, noise-canceling headphones, over-the-ear headphones. Put on those. I plug into my phone, and I play my, my two-hour waterfall sound. It's just this white noise and a little bit of birds, but just white noise. And I am deaf to everything else that's going on. I got it nice and loud, and I'm focused on the Word, and I'm writing, and I'm reading this. And after about an hour and a half, Linda comes in, and I can't hear the door open. And then she puts her hand on my shoulder. And I lost a year off my life. I, I just raised about two feet in my... I yelled, Whoa! You can't help that. You, you can't help that kind of response to a shocking event. That's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not giving in to fear. Giving in to fear takes that and then maintains it. Even the sense of this word is, is not... Don't be afraid, but don't be overcome. Don't be dominated by fear. And he tells them what's going to happen. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. There's a demonic nature to the attacks that come, but, but don't divorce that from what he says in verse 9, that the Jews are a synagogue of Satan. The devil has people. Spiritual warfare that we face is far more likely to be an issue of truth and evil people acting in oppression than some demonic manifestation. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison, and there's a purpose for that. It's that you might be tested. Now, that's something we have to think about. The devil doesn't want to test you. The devil wants to destroy you. He wants to crush you. He wants to, to render you into dust and blow you off into the sunset. The testing here that takes place is the testing that proves uh, how, how real something is. So Peter writes about it. In this, in the promise of God to keep us, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This testing proves how real the faith is. I, I wish... I wish we had Star Trek, and I wish we had Scotty, and I wish that we could all get beamed up to the Enterprise and then immediately beam down to South Africa or Australia or someplace where there's diamond mines. Because we, we hear about these people picking up this massive rock, basketball-sized rock or softball-sized rock, 
And they take it to a gemologist, and it's just a rock. But inside that rock is a diamond. And they've got a ten or 15,000 carat rock, and a gemologist starts cutting and splitting off that outer edge, and in the inside of that thing is a three or 4,000 carat diamond that's perfect. Absolutely beautiful, invaluable, priceless. The gemologist doesn't add anything, does he? He takes away. You ladies, if you've got a diamond that started as a rock, it had to be cut and polished. It actually lost. But what it lost was that kind of gross outside layer that doesn't look like anything. It doesn't matter at all. Well, when he says this testing is there to prove the genuineness of your faith, it's really the the testing that is cutting away that that which is on the the outside so that the real faith on the inside can be revealed. It's not that your faith is, is built as much as it's revealed. Faith is a gift from God. He doesn't give imperfect gifts. He doesn't give partial gifts. If you're like me, what you've done is you, you've taken that, that priceless, gorgeous nugget of faith and you've surrounded it with a bunch of fleshly junk. Like fear and doubt and self-doubt and doubting God. Instead of saying, forget what's on the outside, I'm going to stick with what he said in his word. And as we go through those trials and the circumstances that we endure, he cuts away all of our props. He cuts away all the stuff that we lean on. All the things that we think make us who we are, when really they prevent us from being who He has made us to be. He proves the genuineness of our faith. And Jesus says, be faithful unto death, which means all the way up to the point of death. Not just be faithful, but be faithful unto death. And I will give you the crown of life. Now, being faithful unto death might seem awfully difficult, but these people in Smyrna are, are, are almost there as it is. Be faithful unto death doesn't mean swim oceans. Be faithful unto death doesn't mean climb high mountains. Be faithful unto death doesn't mean run marathons one after another. It doesn't mean become an Ironman triathlete. It means continue to trust Jesus. If your faith is in Him, that's not actually hard. That's not actually hard. What I find people struggling with is is their own weakness. I don't know if I can trust God with this. Well, what does that mean? Well, I don't know if I can trust Him. Do you distrust Him? No. Then you trust Him. Well, I don't know if I can trust God with that. Do you have any choice? No. Stop worrying about the next moment. Stop worrying about what will happen in a week, what will happen in a month or a year, and trust Him. We got a call when Kevin was uh, about 15 or 16 months old. Linda was pregnant. I won't tell you who with. And it's the doctor. Linda had the blood test, and the blood test came back positive for spina bifida. Again, 
We hadn't had a blood test with Kevin. And the doctor said, a great guy, he said, we can just schedule your abortion. If he was here now, I'd slap him. We said, no. No, it doesn't matter to us. It doesn't matter to us. And we had about six weeks of dealing with this whole aspect of genetics and the, and the, the medical community that was absolutely ugly, absolutely brutal to us. Absolutely brutal. Um, we finally, after going through all of this stuff, met with the expert. And the expert says, and I can't remember the exact numbers, but the expert says, normal is 5.0 to 8.0. You came back at 4.99. It's like, are you kidding? It came back within that whole error margin of error thing, and you've put us through six weeks. But it, but it was six weeks of saying, Lord, we trust you. We trust you. We trust you. It doesn't matter what the outcome is. You're God. And you're good. And so it actually built our faith. And it gave us the ability to say, we will never do that. We would never do that. Not because we had some tremendous faith, but because we were determined to be faithful unto death. To simply believe. Jesus says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Now this is not a royal crown. This is not a, 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 a thing made of gold that sits up on top of a king's head that's got gems in it. This is actually a wreath. Back in those days, uh, athletes and events didn't win a, a gold medal or a, 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 some kind of a trophy. The winner of, of the race or the winner of the event, they, they would take uh, laurel, the plant laurel, and they would weave it into a, a, a wreath, and they'd put that wreath up on top of their head. That's what they got for that marathon. It's, it's not much of a payoff. Can't really put it on eBay or Pawn Stars or something like that. But you know, you got the. But what happened is when you walked through the city, everybody who saw that wreath knew knew that you had won. They knew that you'd competed. They knew that you'd competed according to the rules. They knew that you'd crossed the finish line and you won. The crown of life is not a hat. The crown of life is life which crowns us. The crown of righteousness is not a hat. It's righteousness which crowns us. The crown of life is the life that God gives. The life that Jesus gives when we remain faithful unto death. So that as we see one another in heaven, as we see one another in eternity, we'll know that life is just pouring out from us. We've been crowned with it. We've been wreathed with it. Righteousness as a crown is exactly the same way. It will be there. So what's the prize here? The prize is life. Life. They're afraid of death. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you life. Life as Jesus has it, who died and came to life. Life that is no longer something that we kind of cling to, 
or that we think about every once in a while, life that is, is glowing like the sun, well, actually glowing like the moon. The sun generates its own light. Jesus generates life and gives it to us. The moon reflects the light of the sun. We'll reflect that light poured out upon us. And we'll reflect that light for all eternity. At the end of Revelation, it says there's no sun or moon or stars because God and the Lamb are the light. Well, they're reflecting off of us. That's the life that we get. What do we receive for all of this? We receive life. Now, for the time being, these people in Smyrna, these faithful saints who have, who have been faithful, they've continued to be faithful, Jesus needs to say to them, don't stop being faithful. Some of them are at least are saying, is it worth it? Is it worth it? And Jesus says, yeah, it's worth it. Right now, the Romans look like they're winning. Right now, the Jews look like they're winning. That synagogue of Satan looks like it's doing just great because they're wealthy, they're happy, they've got power, they've got authority, they've got influence, they've got a big, beautiful place to meet, they've got all the rituals that, that they do. But the Lord knows, and we know, and the believers in Smyrna know, that those people are actually in terrible danger. They're facing judgment because they're utterly dismissive of Jesus Christ. They're utterly dismissive of the Scriptures and the Gospel. And so they're utterly dismissive of His people. Linda and I met a man yesterday. She had a flat tire and I went to change her tire. And when I got there, there was this, this older man talking to her. And we started talking about religion and beliefs and Oh, pastor kids, they're all just drug addicts and this and that. And I said, you need to meet my kids. Oh, pastor's wife. That's a pastor's wife. He says, I'll tell you something. And that was how he phrased everything. I'll tell you something. He's the authority. We kept saying, the Bible says. He kept saying, I'll tell you something. He says, I've investigated every major religion and most of the minor ones. Now, I have my doubts about that. That's a lot of work. But I'll let him have his claim. He says, The only religion that ever made sense to me was invented by a woman about the time Muhammad invented Islam. Okay. And the foundational principle that this woman had as a religion is embrace evil. He said, So I don't want anybody to die for my sins. I'll pay for my own sins. And I said, Yeah, you will. For eternity. Yeah, you will. You get your wish. But you don't want to do that. No, I'll tell you something. No, that's okay. See, there are people who are dismissive of Christ and they're dismissive of the, dismissive of the gospel. If you're faithful to Him, they'll be dismissive of you too. The people who hate Him and who hate the truth of the gospel and the truth of the Word will not love you if you're faithful to Him and to the Word. You can't let that throw you. You can't let that turn you away. So Jesus says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Holy Spirit says to the churches. It's divine revelation. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What does it mean to conquer? It means to follow his instructions. Don't fear. Don't fear. Be faithful unto death. We can say, hang on to Jesus in faith and confidence. We can say, trust in Jesus that his intercession will bring you safely home. Not your ability, not your good works, not your ability to say no to sin, 
but Him. Put your hope in Jesus alone. Don't put your hope in any church. Don't put your hope in the church. Don't put your hope in rites and rituals. Don't put your hope in a human being, especially me. I, I have nothing to say. If it isn't in here, I have nothing to say. And because I didn't invent this, all I can do is repeat what I see. I have nothing to say. I have nothing original. Trust in Christ. Don't get short-sighted about the days and the months, months and the weeks and the, and the years. Uh, he says you're about to be cast into prison for ten days. Now, I don't know if that was literally ten days. It seems to me that what he's saying is it's short, it's brief. It's just a small span of time. It's a moment. Linda, one of the things Linda learned long before I learned was the idea of Scripture is that things come to pass. They don't come to stay. They come to pass. Whatever you're facing has come to pass, not to stay. Moments come and go. Well, a week is nothing more than a week's worth of moments. If this moment comes and goes, all right. Demetrius knows what I'm talking about. This week is nothing more than a week's worth of moments. And it'll take a week to get through this week's worth of moments. But at the end of the week, those moments are gone. A month is just a month's worth of moments. A year is just a year's worth of moments. What's eternal is what Jesus gives us. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death, which is condemnation in hell. And it's because of His promise to give us life. As we face the the trials of life and the difficulties of life, as we face the, the just the miseries, we have this promise that a body was broken and blood was shed. And by the faith that He gives us to trust in Him, we are made right with Him. We're justified, which means we're actually declared righteous. He doesn't make us righteous. He declares us righteous. There's an exchange that takes place. The idea of imputing is the idea of crediting or charging. You put something on a on a MasterCard or a Visa card, they they impute that charge to your account. When you make a payment, they impute that payment to your account. This is what the Bible says happened. God took Jesus in whom was no sin, and He imputed to Jesus your sin, as though Jesus had committed that sin. And then He took Jesus' righteousness and He imputed it to your account. All of your sins were imputed to Jesus. Not just the ones you've committed up to this point or the ones that, that, that you've confessed. All of your sins were imputed to Jesus and all of His righteousness has, has been imputed to you. That's what we celebrate today. I don't know what to do about the Jesse Teals and little boys who, who suffer some really freakish injury that could have killed him. 10, 20 years ago probably would have. Certainly before there was helicopter transport to, to Omaha, he would have died. I, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to do with divorce. I don't know what to do with, with uh, the, the pain of sickness and cancer. I don't know what to do with all the... Fi- I really don't know. I've got no clue. I have to keep going back to this and saying, I have a God who says, be faithful unto death. The story is not over. The chapter is not over. 
These moments are coming to pass, not to stay. We keep our eyes on him.